with a track called Big Mouth from the album The Queen Is Dead or the best of, depending if you're a big fan or not. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life. As always, bring you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. As you know, I always like a special guest. This week I caught up with Penny Rambeau, writer, poet, philosopher, painter, musician, and activist, and also one-time member of Crass. So I've got that interview throughout the show, because it's a long, long interview, because it was a long, long chat. So, um, yes, we're going to cut the chat, play the next track, and then get straight into the first part of the interview. This is a track from Crass. This is called Darling. They sell us love as divinity when it's only a social obscenity. Underneath, they're all lovable.
There you go, that's Crass with a track called Darling. And that came from their 1979 album, Stations of the Crass. This is David Eastall, the C86 show. And as I said, and hopefully you were paying attention a bit. Um, this week's special guest is Penny Rambo from Crass and many other things as well. And this is going to be the first part of the interview where we talk about the early years and early influences and all that kind of groovy stuff, including life at Dial House, which plays a huge part in his life and the world of Crass. Penny, take it away. Primarily to uh, be a place where sort of creative people could get together and do things. Um, I wasn't particularly involved in the counterculture as such, I, not knowingly. I mean, I, I, I was sort of go, uh, on my own journey, yes. which had sort of come through, um, I suppose, the, insp- the, the sort of the inspirations behind that were things like the sort of beat writers, um, notably, jazz, notably, uh, Zen, Zen Buddhism, notably. Um, and those were things that I was sort of was mucking about with myself. And uh, <clears throat> so we set up the house and or I set up the house and um, it part of the sort of concept behind the house was that it was an open door. Uh, it wasn't really a community. It was an open door and people could come in and I didn't judge or qualify who should or shouldn't come in. People would always be offered a bed for the night if they needed it and a meal. Um, if they wanted to stay longer, they'd have to talk about it. Yes. Um, but it was really a sort of what happens if you just remove all the restrictions sort of thing as much as one can. You know, one's obviously restricted through psychologies and social mores and that sort of stuff. But, um, I mean, it's been a lifelong experiment in yes. seeing what happens. and. So I never sort of, I didn't advertise anything. I never have done. I didn't talk about anything particularly. People just turned up, you know, out of the blue, really. And this and, is, and is this just to sort of clarify, that's where you live in now, Dial House in Essex? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, and we still operate under the same um, principles. Uh, and actually, currently, we're trying to put the place into trust because, you know, there's the, the, the a long term residents here are certainly not getting any younger. So we're looking to the you know long distant future, you know, so we're, we're trying to get into trust as a sort of radical center yes. um, so that, you know, in 50 years time, people can still be wandering around the garden, sitting at the kitchen table and talking philosophy and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you know we're pretty. We've started that process. So hopefully by the end of the year we'll have it all signed and sealed. And um, so yes, um, that's been the principle. And uh, yeah, so inevitably, um, I mean, I didn't know other people might be doing similar sorts of things until you know a good few years after I'd you know set up the place and then actually the commune movement it was called I think it was called the commune movement at the time suddenly appeared on my doorstep sort of thing and I started to get realize well other people were doing other things similar things etc etc yes because it's interesting Uh, you mentioned that because because obviously sort of speaking to a lot of people who had, especially those kind of more, I wouldn't say innocent, but those kind of initial kind of experiences of community and communes, mm. mostly they didn't end terribly well, like a lot of creative things. You know, things get a bit difficult and there's there's characters who appear that don't leave and things like that. So how did you deal with those aspects, which I would say 99% of people end up just wanting to live in a comfortable house which is fair enough but you've obviously managed five decades later to keep that going yeah well I think actually I mean it might, it might sound strange but having a principle of being an open door and having no uh, philosophical um, dogma um, there's uh, I mean I have been accused of running a sort of laissez-faire in a negative sense, situation. In other words, I don't intervene. I don't impose my views and my beliefs on people who are here. If they want to hear them, you know, they can ask and we can talk about it. But it's, this place is not here for me. It's for other people who are passing through or not passing through. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so they're not challenged in that way. And I mean, oh, well, I mean, there's a very another very obvious one is it's been a no drugs household throughout. Um, at one time we had we didn't even we, we included caffeine and alcohol and nicotine within those restrictions. Well, I mean, we now, you know, there might be wine at dinner. I don't drink myself, but, you know, that, that that's been lifted. We still absolutely um, a no drugs community or uh, household. Uh, and that's, uh, I mean, we've had alcoholics living here and we've had junkies living here on periods and they've always generally been shocking problem. Um, but, you know, and, and um, I think, again, the sort of uh, if one's not looking to try and change people and muck about with them, then they make their own decisions and they make and those decisions tend to be good ones. Um, I think that because most decisions people make in their lives are reactive, you know, they're reactive to things that are being done to them or around them. I mean, most mental health issues are completely sourced in that domain. It's what other people are doing to me that's making me feel so shit, really. And, you know, I, so I'm responding through some form of psychosis. Well, if you don't create that challenge, um, then then it fades away. And I mean, certainly we've had people here who, you know, you could probably put in the sort of framework of the psychosis. And when and, and, and there's no fear shown. Um, because why should one be afraid? People are just people. Yeah. Uh, um, there's no resistance shown. I mean, I mean, bit, bit in the way like sort of the you know the great martial arts all concentrate on allowing the aggressor to you know destroy themselves through being fluid around them. Um, and you know you could place that in a sort of psychological framework. Um, and that, I think, generally speaking, I wouldn't like to say it works because then other people say, oh, I'm going to try that. Well, I'm not advocating anything at all. I'm saying how we've survived. Yes. Um, and ultimately, it's an awful lot to do with personalities and people and, you know, charismatics and all sorts of things and what people give up. Indeed, that was the first part of my interview with Penny Rambo. I've got another three parts to go, but uh, I thought we should break it up with a little little bit of music. A few years ago, Geoffrey Lewis brought out a, an acoustic album of crass songs, which um, some of us liked, and some of us, I don't, have no idea, actually. Anyway, I don't care. I like them, and that's the main thing. So I thought I should play a track from that album. This is called End Result. Of endless, hopeless, fruitless, aimless games I'm a glossy package on the market shelf My contents aren't fit for human consumption I could tragically injure your perfect health My ingredients will seize up your body's function I'm the dirt that everyone walks on I am the orphan nobody wants I am the stair cart that everyone walks on I am the leopard nobody wants to touch I am a sample, I am a scapegoat of useless, futureless, endless, mindless ideas I'm a number on the paper you file away I'm a portfolio you stick in the drawer I'm the fool you try to scare when you say We know all about you, of that you can be sure Well I don't want your crazy system, I don't want to be on your files your temptations, I try to resist them Cause I know what hides beneath your smile I am a topic, I am a subject For useless, futureless, endless, mindless debates You think of ways that you can hide me from The naive eyes of your figurehead But don't you find that it ain't easy? Wouldn't you love to see me dead? Your answer is to give me treatment For crying out when you give me pain Leave me with no possible remnant You poke your knives into my brain I am an example, I'm no hero of the great 
intelligent, magnificent human race I'm part of the race that kills for possessions Part of the race that's wiping itself out I'm part of the race that's got crazy obsessions Like locking people up, not letting them out I hate the living dead and their working factories They go like sheep to their production lines They live on illusions, don't face the realities All they live for is that big blue sign It says I am a symbol of endless, hopeless, fruitless, aimless games I am a sample, I am a scapegoat of useless, futureless, endless, mindless ideas I am a topic, I am a subject for useless, futureless, endless, mindless debates I am an example, I am no hero of the great, intelligent, magnificent human race Yes, the unmistakable sound that is Jeffrey Lewis, and that was a track called End Result. All the results, I'll have to check, who knows. Anyway, that came from an album called 12, uh, 12 Crass Songs. So um, if you like that vibe and you like listening to the lyrics of Crass, then fill your boots, it's going to be worth checking out. Anyway, David Eastall, The C86 Show. This is going to be the second part of my interview with Penny, um, where we talk about Wally Hope, who's a major character in his life, well, Penny's life, um, and also the counterculture and things like Stonehenge Festival. Um, and a few years ago, or well, decades probably, Penny wrote a sort of book all about Wally Hope. And this is the part of the interview where we discuss Wally in great detail, because frankly, I'm fascinated by this one. And uh, he, he called himself Wally Hope. And uh, he, he just turned up as, you know, one of the many people who turn up. You know, in fact, um, the, one of the nearby villages had a sort of, you know, small dope-smoking school kids who had noticed Dial House as a, a railway line runs down the bottom of the garden, and they'd noticed this strange-looking place, so they, they sort of came hunting for it, and they became one of the earliest people who would hang out here, um, this group of what, what were basically school kids who, you know, being naughty and smoking dope. Well, they didn't smoke it here. And bit by bit, each one of them realised they didn't need to smoke dope because actually there's a different form and a much more fluid and creative form of freedom available right, you know, inside their head. And all of them have become creative people, filmmakers, writers, theatre, etc. all of that group, which is lovely. Anyway... Uh, Wally Hope was uh, from the same village, at least his guardians lived in the same village. So he obviously got to hear about the place from them. And then he turned up here and I mean, he was a lot older than they were. He was about about my age. Um, and at the time, I was about 25. Uh, and he had he had the idea of uh, squatting Stonehenge because there had been the Winds of Free festivals and that turned into sort of pretty politically um, activated events, really. I mean, you don't squat the Queen's backyard without expecting trouble. And basically speaking, I think that it was a deliberate piece of pro provocation by um, Heathcote Williams and Sid Rawl and that group of, you know, sort of hippie leaders, if you like. Uh, these were people who'd got a sort of mission. They wanted to change the world their way. Yes. Uh, and I hadn't got a lot of time for them. They didn't fit into my more sort of zenny, well, you know, the world knows how to change itself. You know, and we, we want, who do we imagine we are, etc. sort of thinking. Um, and, and so Wally's idea was really to go somewhere nice where no one would mind. I mean, it certainly was not designed to be provocative. It was something he wanted everyone to get together and have, have a nice time. I mean, very naive and innocent, really. And it seemed like a jolly nice idea. So um, basically, uh, I mean, he, I think he, maybe the idea developed in his mind through sitting around the gardens here, or maybe not, but anyway, that, uh, we, so we 
basically planned it together you know what we should do like i mean his ideas we, i mean we had to write letters inviting people like princess margaret and the dalai lama which i thought was a little bit airy of him but we did it none of them turned up i might say but um uh, only he had a bit of a penchant for hostesses for air hostesses for some reason or other so we wrote to ba asking all the air hostesses if they'd like to come along etc etc i mean it was, so it was sort of like alice in wonderland really i mean what did come along was about you know probably no more than a hundred um hippies um who squatted Stonehenge. What Wally hadn't realised was 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 that a they weren't actually squatting on the Stonehenge, which wasn't English heritage or anything. Then I don't think it was just on some farmer's land. Probably yes. I'm not really sure about the history there, but just up the road was Portland Down, and they were actually squatted on Ministry of Defence land, which is not a good idea. Um, and so you know the forces that B intervened and tried to move them off. So they just sort of moved over the fence off Ministry of Defence land and then they ended up in the courts, lost the case, etc, etc. Um, it's very, very hard to do a sort of pricey on this story. Yes. Uh, uh, the next year we did the same. He went off to Beetsa or somewhere or other to you know, chill out, came back beginning of the year, same plans, you know, same invites. Uh, he used to go up to London handing out little leaflets and all the rest of it. And I mean, it really became a buzz, you know, the um, the word of mouth thing, uh, the fact that it had happened the year before, the fact that it created, you know, a lot of news through the court case, which was in the high courts, actually, in London, right in the middle of the sort of silly period, you know, in the summer period when the press are looking for stories because there isn't stories. And um, so it, 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 it became a word of mouth thing, a big buzz. And, you know, hundreds, thousands turned up for the second Stonehenge Festival. And uh, by then, Ollie was incarcerated at, in a mental institution in Shrewsbury Mental Hospital. And um, under uh, uh, under the um, fake diagnosis of um, being a schizophrenic, it, I mean the story is long, very long, and we'd be here for the rest of the day talking about it. But, yes, uh, I mean essentially he was um, arrested and uh, for a. a well, in those days was not so minor a crime as it might be now, but he was arrested for a possession of the number of acid tabs has never, ever been um, uh, confirmed or whatever. I mean, one to three. Uh, but he was, uh, yeah, he was actually arrested by military police. Well, military police don't arrest civilians. So, and, and from then on, the story gets more and more Kafkaesque, really. Um, he was released, apparently cured from his schizophrenia on the on the day that the last hippie left the Stonehenge Festival, the second Stonehenge Festival. Uh, by then, he'd been completely destroyed by psych um, um, by. Um, I, I'm trying to think. It's not psychotropic drugs, but you know by. Um, by the drugs he'd been administered, antipsychotic drugs, anti logactyl, um, modicut, all those drugs, uh, are basically mental straight, uh, sort of like mental uh, straitjackets or drug lobotomy, however you want to put it. And his brain was destroyed, and it, um, he was in a terrible state, and. Um, his guardian, who was a doctor, said, well, he knew precisely what it was. It was um, now, let me think, uh, chronic dyskinesia, and it's incurable. I mean, he'd been made into cabbage by the state. Yes. And, uh, we, he came back here, and we tried to help, you know, and we tried to help with sort of Chinese herbs and 
exercise, nothing did help, you know, I mean, he was destroyed. I mean, um, he could still talk, but he couldn't walk, for example. He couldn't, he, he, he wasn't able to walk anymore. Well, not properly. He walked, if he, if his left leg went forward, his left arm went forward. So, you know, and, and, and you know, he, his whole physical uh, continuity was destroyed. Uh, he'd spend all night crying and all day cowering from the sun, the sun that he worshipped and loved now really desperately affected him because that's one of the effects of those drugs is that they make you very, very sun sensitive. So he'd just burn the moment he was in the sun. So that was a shocking denial for a sun worshipper. And I mean, the whole Stonehenge festival was based around this, let's worship the sun and da 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 da. Yes. Um, anyway, the government, for some strange reason, decided to offer um, the festival movement a space. It was an old um, airfield in, I can't remember the name, it'll come up, but I'm not, I don't remember what the name of the place was, Watchfield. Um, and uh, Wally wanted to go. I mean, he was in a disgusting, appalling state, and we really, really tried to persuade him not to, but he went. He was seen there. Uh, he did a video. Um, well, uh, a, a film was made of him um, being interviewed, and he looks morose, he looks grim, he looks unhealthy, he looks like a you know, cracked person. And anyway, he came back from there, went back to his guardians, where two days later he was found dead on the kitchen floor. Um, and I started, in, but the moment I knew about it, I investigated. And the key thing about my investigation was that very, very early on, the coronary reports on his body um, mentioned needle marks. Well, I, needle marks and Wally didn't fit together. That wasn't right. I mean, it's certainly right that he might have had needles in his ass, um, you know, a modica when he mm. was in the uh, um, mental institution. But these were fresh needle marks, or a fresh needle mark. In fact, it wasn't needle marks. And I, I, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I don't remember whether it was in the arm or the leg. Um, and uh, that. Uh, I thought, uh, this is weird, what's going on here? I, I got in touch with John Snag, who was another one of his guardians who, who had gotten involved. And he absolutely concurred. There's no way in which Wally would have committed suicide. It's not, it just wasn't, it was even given his appalling state. In fact, his appalling state would probably have made it even less possible for him to commit suicide. I don't think he even thought of it. Yes. Um, anyway, I investigated that. I spent a year, about a year and a half, investigating it and going down some pretty dark avenues and in the end came to the conclusion that, which I've stuck with, that he was assassinated by the state. He was taken out by the state. They'd seen that they actually hadn't managed to silence him in the mental institution and um, had he turned... and and. He turned up at Watchfield, and then two days later he was dead. Well, that's because he shouldn't have turned up at Watchfield. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, and there's no question that the state then used to take people out and do still. Indeed, it's an interesting and slightly murky world, but there you go. That's the second part of my interview with Penny Rambo. Um, I've still got a few more bits to come, but before we play that, I think we should have a little bit more music. Once again, this is going to be a little bit of Jeffrey Lewis and the track called Band from the Roxy. Band from the Roxy, okay. I never much like playing there anyway. They said they only wanted well-behaved boys. Do they think guitars and microphones are just toys? Well, I've chosen to make my stand against what I feel is wrong with this land. They just sit there on their overfed asses, feeding off the sweat of the less fortunate classes. They keep their power with their fingers on the butt. They've got control and won't let it be forgot. The truth of their reality is at the end of a gun. The proof is all in history and it's no fun. Seeing the army in your front yard, seeing the machine guns resting on the fence, finding the entrance to your door is barred, and they've got the nerve to call that defense. Seems their defense is just a threat of strange protection for the privileged at any length. The government protecting their profits from the poor, the rich and the fortunate chaining up the door, afraid the people may ask for a little bit more than the sh- 
Defense, it's nothing less than war And no one but the government knows what it's for Oh yes, they say it's defense, say it's decency My lie, Hiroshima, know what I mean The same lies with depressing frequency They say we had to do it to keep our lives clean Well, who's wife? Who are they talking to? I'll tell you one thing, it ain't me and you and their systems, Christ, they're everywhere. School, army, church, the corporation deal. A reality based on fear, a conspiracy to stop you feeling real. But they're wrong, I say they're wrong, I swear they're wrong, I know they're wrong. I ain't quite ready with my gun, but we've always got our son. So I've been back on the Roxy, okay, back on the Roxy, okay. There you go, another little bit of Jeffrey Lewis and the track called Band from the Roxy with some interest in editing. You may have noticed that. But anyway, it's a bit of a tricky one this time. But uh, this is going to be my third part of the interview with Penny Rambo from Crass and many other things, um, where we talk about the formation of the band, which I find fascinating. Well, the band came about, I mean, we didn't ever intend to have a band. I mean, I was suffering from, I was living on my own because everyone had left. Um, feeling very soft because, you know, because of what had happened with Wally. I'd burnt the book. I was empty, pretty, you know, angry, really, I suppose. And then, you know, young lad turned up. He was the brother of someone who used to who used to hang around here, very much younger than me, Steve. And he wanted to make a band, you know, and he, his mates over in Dagnum had all said, no, nah, we're, we're not interested, don't want to do that. Uh, and, and Steve remembered from being here when he was a young kid, um, you know, that I've got a drum kit. So, uh, I mean, basically, I said, well, yeah, we, we can be a band if you like, you know. So we just did it. And we, I mean, everything's done here, a bit like I said earlier, you know, because someone asked. If someone asked, we do it. You know, I don't have any, I haven't got any personal motive. I have very little personal motivation in the sense of why should I do something unless it's worthwhile for something, you know, for someone, basically. Yes. Uh, how can we help sort of thing? Anyway, um, so it was just the two of us. We hadn't got any ideas. We, we, weren't, we weren't sort of set on becoming the Beatles or something. We just enjoyed going into the back room here and mucking about. Um, and but, but then other you know because the place has always got people wandering through other people would wander through and say cool blimey that sounds right we have a go you know and anyone who said can we have a go join so we didn't sort of say oh well, we've got to get this or got to go. people just joined in um, and that was what the band was and we never as I say you know had any ambitions or intentions or desires we just in, we were doing it because it was something to do in the afternoon. But it must have been a fantastic break for your brain and spirit after the kind of the darkness of the uh, the, the years before that, you know, with Wally and, and dealing with the sort of darkness, paranoia sort of and, and the general worry that you're going to be found dead one day. I don't know that it was a break, actually. Um, I don't. It was almost like a continuation. It was sort of like I, I, I realised that... Um, how what we were up against through um wally's death i mean i had thought just being nice and vegetables and saying hello to people and making them cups of tea and letting them stay it was a good way to live you know and if you were good then the world would be good around you sort of naively um or maybe not naively i've come back to that way of thinking now as a matter of fact um and um, so the whole Wally thing, I just thought, well, okay, this doesn't work. Um, it isn't enough to just grow your organic vegetables and be nice to people. We've got to get out in the street and make an issue about it. And, and we weren't getting out in the street to create revolution well we were but the revolution was really get a life get a get a life that's your own life don't let anyone trick you and fool you about who you are you've got to find out who you are and you then you make your choice that was our main message in one form or another and um 
that was an extension of here. We couldn't invite everyone here. I mean, we couldn't. Um, well, I did, at one time did think of having a festival here on because we've got farmland all around us. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll just invite everyone here, but you know, that never happened. So what we effectively we were taking the kitchen table into scout huts and concert halls and clubs and doing the same thing that we do around the kitchen table here, which has always been where we sit and chat. Uh, and that's all we were doing, and that included songs. Um, I mean, and the songs actually were no more important. Well, they were less important than the chat. They were just a, a part of the chat. And I don't think I ever really saw it much more than that. You know, it was just, well, okay, let's get out and share the good things we've got and try and help people to create good things themselves, which is why, for example, you know, uh, the majority of the money we earned on any tour, which was never a huge amount, but wherever we were, say we were doing a gig in Cleeton Moor and, you know, up in uh, Cumbria, then the money for that went towards, I think, buying a bass drum for the, their little punk band and towards a fanzine. In another place, it might go to a rape center, a rape crisis center, or that sort of thing. You know, like we'd always try and leave the dosh where we'd collected the dosh because that's where the dosh belonged. And uh, so, if there was anything good we could do with it, we did it. Which is why we ended up with very little money um, because we weren't in it for money. We were in it just to share what we'd got. Um, and that hasn't changed. It was just another way of doing it. Um, it was an extension of my own idea of let's take the locks off the door and see what happens. Well, it was the same. Let's go out and sort of say to people, get a life and see what happens. You know, and we didn't plan it all. It was very unplanned. Yes. I mean, did you, I mean, as it started to develop, and I think most people have the same thing that, you know, they form a band and, you know, they don't know if it's going to get sort of beyond that sort of just playing in front of a few friends at a sort of small club. And then they're always a bit surprised when suddenly it gets picked up and someone like John Peel played it. And, and then, you know, it gets mentioned in the NME or they get features and then suddenly they're on a tour and they, they haven't had time to really have any thought or plan of like, oh, what should we try to do with this? It's just like the wheels of the industry have just kind of moved and they're moving with it. And everybody gets a bit carried away and a bit excitable. So did you have any moments where you felt either you were able to steer it or did you ever feel just like it was like being sort of blown along? Oh, no, quite the opposite. I mean, we I mean, we had nothing to do with the industry. We, we had our own label. We, we managed ourselves. We were our own roaders. We were our own musicians. We were our own cooks. You know, we didn't have anything to do with it. Um, it, it was a no. I mean, we uh, and we very soon realised that the enemy and sounds were bullshit, and they just were doing what they wanted to do with you, and we wouldn't do anything for them. We didn't do any interviews with those people. We told them sod off, you know. We and 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 we made Tuesdays fanzine day. So all if anyone wanted to find an interview with Crash, then they had to go and find the fanzine. And we were in hundreds of fanzines. Um, and, and by doing that, we actually were promoting, you know, I mean, some young kid from Bradford makes his way down, does an interview with Crass, puts it into an interview. Well, people really wanted to know about the band. Well, they weren't going to find out about the band from Sounds or NME. The only way they could find out is, is buying this kid from Bradford's fanzine. Um, so in a way, you know, like again, it was another situation where we were able to sort of, you know, use the, you know, an existing system to the benefit of all of us. Um, and so, no, I, I mean, really, even at times when, you know, I mean, there was months, years when we completely dominated the alternative charts in the days when the alternative charts were actually genuine. No, that didn't. So what? You know, um, it was never the thousands and millions were never important. What was always important was each individual, each person who might be touched by something 
you know, at one point, you know, so there was a variety, you know, we, the trajectories were multiple. We, we were trying to fire, you know, from all sides, um, trying to just touch something in people which would, you know, if you like, make them go, wow, this is life. Not, oh, my God, what have I got to do, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, like trying to in, 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 uh, empower people to make their own choices and and Scott you know the business was of no interest whatsoever to us and we had never had anything to do with it at all yeah well just two things I was going to say you know fast forward a few decades did you enjoy when uh Jeffrey Lewis brought out an album of your 12 of your songs but done much more acoustically which kind of brought out the lyrics when you if you have heard that um I just was kind of curious what you thought about it oh that was sweet Yes. Yeah. Sweet is the word. Yes. I met him when I was in New York, actually, because um, I had a show of my um, drawings in New York a few years back, and he turned up at that, and he was a very, he was very, he was a very sweet guy. Nice, I like him. Yeah, because obviously, I mean, you know, I just recently saw that, you know, Steve is still sort of doing... Yeah. Geeks and stuff around the place. I think he was in Las Vegas kind of last month doing some punk punk festival there and obviously doing crass songs too. So do you still sort of, are you slightly amazed that sort of the, the work is still, you know, because when you made it, did you feel like this was just for the moment and there was no idea of it sort of having any longevity? Um... Well, obviously, I had no idea of, of longevity. I'm not surprised that it has because there's so little of any real value in the commercial world. That, you know, inevitably, <clears throat> stuff of the quality of Crass, you know, from its artwork to its lyrics to its sort of thoughtfulness, mindfulness, if you like, makes it quite unique, really. You know, uh, not unique, singularly unique, but another rare thing i mean in like in the mersey sound when, when everyone was talking about the mersey sound i mean actually it was only one or two outstanding um bands or groups or individuals or whatever you want to call it within that and all the rest was just you know commercial nonsense or or stuff that of, of, of people trying to you know make a buck out of whatever happened to be happening and frankly the punk thing was no different to that there wasn't an awful lot of real value within it lasting value yes and uh you know i mean it's not for me to say it but i can say it because i'm told all the time you know that that the lasting value of what we did as christ has given people so much in life and well that's good um that's what it, you know, I could never have hoped to do that. And that's the third part of my interview with Penny Rambo. Just one more bit to go before the end of the show, but a little bit more music from Crass, I do believe. This is called Speed or Greed.
Speed or greed from Crass. This is going to be the last part of my interview with Rabbit Penny Rambo. This has been David Eastall, the C86 show. And um, yes, this is where we talk about the end of the band. No, I mean, we always, I mean, from the very start, um, we had a countdown to 1984. I mean, we started the band in 1977. And um, that's why we had. Um, um that that um that sort of count countdown sort of four years to 1984 on all of our records our catalog numbers were based around this countdown and we pretty much um felt that's we were we were giving ourselves a seven year this is when we became the band when it wasn't just steve and myself up you know playing around in in the in the what became the music room um and um yeah i think we plan seven years is a good spin you know we'll our, our entire metabolism will be changed in that seven years you know seven years is a you know we're not the same people uh our particles have jangled yeah uh, stop after seven years you know so it happened i mean it it, it actually it came, you know, because one member of the band just decided it was, it was, it it happened that, that, that after we did a um, benefit for the miners down in Aberdare in '84, and it was incredibly sad. Um, you know, it was the time where the miners had sort of lost, lost everything really, and didn't know where to go next. And it was like moving into some horror movie from the '50s or something. Just disillusioned, sad people. And we took loads of food down there and we did a gig and everything. And I think we came away thinking, you know, this isn't enough. Well, I think we all wanted to give more and we couldn't. We, you know, we certainly realised we couldn't do it jumping up and down on the stage, you know, even though that was only very much a part of what we did. It certainly, you know, at that period, we, we were becoming increasingly activist. I mean, we always have been, uh, from Greenham Green Common, you know, with the women in the band to, you know, all sorts of covert no, um, actions. Um, so increasingly we were thinking in that, I, I particularly was thinking in, in that direction of, well, how do we use what we've sort of created, you know, on this, this sort of platform in some sort of more direct way? And I mean, the Stop the, the, Stop the City riots were very much a part of that. You know what? No, it wasn't us who actually came up with the uh, concept, but it was certainly us who um, attracted the sort of huge were part of what was attracted attracted the huge crowds there. Uh, we made something of it, which someone who didn't have the sort of platform that we had wouldn't have been able to do. So we started using the platform, you know, in those sorts of events um, until it became clear that that probably wasn't the best way to be moving, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I can't remember what your question was. Wasn't <laughs> I think kind of um, calling it, you know, sort of like, did you have a moment calling it a day, you know, but you said, you know, you had this idea that it was going to be 1984 and um, mm. and that was it. Because it was kind of interesting because at that time, you know, we'd had rock against racism and then we had the Red Wedge movement and you had bands like the Redskins and obviously yeah, Billy yeah. Bragg and all those yeah. bands and people's yeah. desperation to get a different government was uh, certainly sort of, building a head of steam, you know, with people like all sorts, you know, from Paul Weller to the specials. Um, I mean, I, 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 I just wonder what it felt like to, to sort of have having stepped away from being in Crass and having that platform to going back to the, to the cottage. 
Well, firstly, I think, I mean, I have to say that, you know, Billy Bragg, da, 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 da. But, you know, I, I've got no time for reformists and they were all reformists. I mean, Weller drew out of it because he realised that as well. Um, because reform, you know, asking the government to sort of make life worthwhile is like, you know, asking McDonald's to make a decent bit of food. Um, it's not possible. It's not, it's a silly, it's a, you, it, it, you can't, if you're in that narrative, then you work with that narrative and you piss around. But, but um, so sort of reformist politics disgust me, really. I mean, because they're confirmation of the bad that people think ought to be a bit better. And it's never anything more than sort of concessions. So I've got no time for it. Um, and uh, the other point from what you're saying was... Uh, it didn't make any difference to me that we weren't operating anymore because I, because we were never operating. You know, Crass was a group of quite disparate um, individuals who got together for seven years, worked together very intensely and very well for seven years. When the band stopped, actually, we looked at each other and effectively said, well, who the hell are you? You know, because we were pooling our energies and pooling our ideas to the degree that one didn't know which was which anymore. You know, we'd, we'd lost ourselves in this sort of corporate identity, you know. Um, and so you come out of it as the person you went in, if you see. It didn't have any effect, I don't think. I, I mean, I no, it didn't, on me it had no effect. I was just, well, what do I do next? I mean, I took up climb, mountain climbing. That's one thing I did next. I, went back to the drawing board in on in a sort of revolutionary or avant-garde sense. Uh, well, all right, you know, um, what's my next sort of effort? Um, not in a sort of self-conscious way, um, just because that's what I do. Um, I've never been interested in what um, programs or patterns or ambitions I mean, that doesn't interest me what has always interested me is finding out what the hell's going on both inside my head and inside the sort of whole cosmos really i mean that's the only and whatever way i if i can find a clue that's what i pursue yeah. um it doesn't so, remind, it doesn't remind me of um, danny from with nell and i when he sort of talked about hair being the the uh was it the tentacles to the cosmos yeah <laughs> That's why bull people are so uptight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I was quite like that one. But um, because obviously, fast forward again, I mean, and one thing that happens in most of our lives, if we can keep in the game, that is, um, it's kind of one's health kind of is become an in interesting factor. And I, did you also have a kind of a moment that that sort of um, was a bit, bit of a, well, a moment basically? Well, I mean, over the last 10 years, I've had a heart attack, I've had cancer, uh, I've had uh, um, pneumonia, I've had, oh, really, I've had all sorts of bloody stuff. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't go for it. I don't believe in health issues. You know, the issues are much deeper than that. Um, and each one of those things has been a blessing. Um, and I'm not saying that lightly. Uh, and some of them, you know, the heart attack particularly knocked me off my feet. But that, what a blessing. I needed, you know, I needed to be knocked off my feet because I was treading on the wrong ground. Um, and, you know, we're so negative about um, what we call these illnesses and diseases. They're messages. And if we don't listen, then we'll suffer the consequences. And most people seem to be happy to suffer the consequences. Well, uh, they're, they're wake-up calls. Wake-up or drop-dead calls. Um, or wake-up and have a slow-death calls. Well, I prefer to wake up rather than have slow deaths. Um, I don't mind having a slow death, but uh, most importantly, I've, I'll have a slow death after woken up um and so um 
cancer was another one, you know, the big C. Well, well you know, who I, I didn't when uh, it was a friend who actually told me because I was I, um, she'd received a letter from the hospital. I was away, so she got in touch with me and said, well, you know, the diagnosis is, is squamous cancer and blah, blah, blah. And she was already mournful about it. And I said, well, I don't believe in cancer. I don't, you know, it's just a word. It's a, it's a word. I'm not... I don't care what what they think I've got, you know. So I I I took it. The first thing I did for my cancer was to go and get a tattoo on my back. I'd never had a tattoo before, um, but I wanted. I was going, and it was to tell people, "This is my body. Don't muck with it." And um, I uh, so I had Tinkerbell put on my um, right shoulder. And uh, Tinkerbell looks after me. She's not not the National Health Service. To give them credit, they certainly have get looked after me, on, you know, certainly with a heart attack. Um, but so I'm not knocking them. But it was a sort of statement. No, 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 no. Uh, you know, I've got to. I've, I've got to run this. It's my body. It's my mind. It's my life. I've got to run this situation. So Tinkerbell was the first move. And then I started, you know, and I um, did Chinese herbs and et cetera, et cetera, and, and completely, with the help of, you know, a very brilliant Chinese herbalist, healed, my, healed myself. But healing, healing myself, when one heals oneself in that way, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not just eliminating or plastering over what, what, what conventionally is called an illness. You're, you're, you're actually um coming to life in the true sense coming to life not just coming to life in yourself you're coming to life in its greater self um and when if i analyze the time you know my heart attack why did i have the heart attack i can i can see why i needed to have it why it was a blessing why it was a gift because it took away a huge lump of me, another whole pile of sort of stupid conceits and illusions that I'd, I'd, I'd developed around myself. When I thought I was really clear, you know, I'd sort of, I'd really, I'd, I'd, I'd start I'd, about 10 years or how long ago, I'd started, you know, getting serious about Zen, you know, and I was studying, I was going on retreats and meditating, which I still do, but not with the, the same pretenses that I did, you know, 10 years ago by, and I was beginning to think, oh yeah, I'm getting a bit hip here, you know, <laughs> a pretty Zen man sort of stuff. I, I, I am knocking myself unnecessarily here, but there was elements where I was taking it seriously. Well, if you start taking something serious, it's time to, stop being serious um nothing should be taken seriously because nothing can be taken seriously it's simply an adoption an attitude an assumption that one's taken on board for some reason normally for rather dubious reason so the the heart attack came at a very good time it just knocked me off my feet and um And it said, I could hear the voice. It says, "You must be joking, mate. Get get a life." And when get a life in that sense is go to life, honour life. You know, be at one with life. Life will care for you, and if it, it might care for you by you dying tomorrow, but life is caring for you, and life will care. It's benevolent, and it's benign. <laughs> And that's the fourth part of my interview with Penny Rambo. Just one more little bit still to go. But um, before that, I think we should play one more track. This is, well, we might play two because I'll probably play one at the end. But anyway, just details. This is going to be Do They Owe Us a Living? All right. It is done in entertainment. Take it as entertainment. So please don't take it any other way. Do I owe us a living? 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 Do I owe us a living?
Indeed, the power punk sound that's crass. Do they owe us a living? David Eastall, C86 Show, my special on Penny Rambo. Um, this is the last bit when I ask him what he would say to his 18-year-old self. I'll just say thank you. Yes. And just one just one last question, because obviously, you know, a lot of people attach a lot of meaning to, to sort of creative bands and stuff. I mean... You know, bands reforming is always a really bad idea, but one thing that people often quite like is the idea that the members of the band are generally okay with each other at the very minimum. I mean, is that the case with the kind of original and the core members of Crass? Um, no. Um, there's a sort of division which occurred almost as, you know, in 1984 when when the band... Um, decided or ceased to operate as such, and the division, you know, can be looked at in many, from many angles. You know, from it could be looked at from a class angle, it could be looked at from a sort of economic need uh, angle, all sorts of different ways of looking at it. But there's a quite distinct difference between um, four of the band and and the other four you know um well the other three or no four um so uh and although you know we are able to communicate you know there certainly is you know isn't anything that i would call you know sort of friendship as such um we're just people who work together um but i have to say you know that you know, like uh, the thousand, there's thousand, probably thousands of people have passed through this house, you know, over the 50 years I've been here. And I don't look for anything from them. And they're in my heart. I don't need to prove that to anyone, least of all them, you know. So I don't really care where people go that's their business uh you know it's nice if i you know I, I, what i'm trying to say is i haven't kept in touch with many of those thousands of people who must have passed through this place i mean i couldn't possibly do so for a start but i don't need to and if i you know and that's it's a bit like you asked that question about my 18 year old self well it's the same you know I don't. If I were, if I was to meet my apparent worst enemy in the street tomorrow, what would I do? I'd hug them and say thank you. And now we've come to the end. That was my interview with Penny Rambo that I did a couple of weeks ago. A huge thank you for giving me the time for that. Obviously, I had to edit quite a lot out, but I hopefully kept most of it in. This has been David Eastall, the C eighty six show. If you want to contact me, it's a free country. I don't mind if you do. As long as it's kind of creative and positive, otherwise don't bother. You can via Facebook or Twitter, just go to at C86show. I will be here, there, somewhere. I don't know, at my age, it's all a bit confusing. But anyway, thank you again. I will have a special guest next next week. Who knows? But I've got quite a lot lined up. This is going to be another track by Crass. This is Gotcha.
Right.